Okay, so I was in a hotel lobby in D.C., and I started talking to his brother, Tommy Bryant. Now, Tommy has light skin, light eyes, and blondish hair. They say uh, blondes have more fun. But when they're talking about that, they're usually talking about white people. See, Tommy's got albinism, which means that his skin can't produce pigment. Now, Tommy grew up in a black neighborhood, so of course, I wondered, what was that like? There were some kids who said things like, you're different. I thought they were talking about me wearing glasses, but I did not understand that they were talking about my skin color. This was really tough because Tommy grew up during the civil rights movement. He was proud to go to NAACP rallies with his family and his friends. I always knew who I was. I was a part of the African-American race. I never felt any different. But I did realize that there were some people who did not think that I should belong. Then came April 5th, 1968. It was the day after Martin Luther King had been shot. I was on the bus. There was a lot of people out on the streets. They were actually rioting, and they were throwing stones and rocks and bottles. You, you didn't know whether the windows were going to hold up because they were being hit pretty hard. And the bus driver said, get down. He said to me, he said, get down. He said, they think you are white. The people outside thought that I was a white man on the bus, and they were stoning the bus. One thing we didn't want to have happen is for the bus to stop because the people were going to actually try to board the bus or do whatever else they could do. And I prayed. I prayed on the bus because I did not know what was going to happen to me. The bus driver didn't stop. Tommy made it home. But even several decades later, I could feel the sense of betrayal in his voice. It was hard. It was hard. I was confused. I was um, trying to be a part of something that I thought I deserved to be a part of. You're black. Yeah, black. You feel black. Yeah, I feel black. I feel black. I mean, I don't. I, I would to say I. I don't it would be it would be lying. I am different and I am unique, but I'm very much alike everything and everybody else who's African American. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Outside Looking In. Amazing stories from real people just looking for a seat at the table. My name is Glenn Washington. Get ready. Because this, this is Snap Judgment. Snap Judgment. Snappers, on today's show, I can't wait to introduce you to one of the most interesting people to ever get behind a steering wheel. Georgia Durante. When I was younger, I had this thirst for danger and excitement. I hopped a freight train when I was nine years old and ran away from home. It wasn't because I had a bad childhood. I had a wonderful childhood. I had parents that loved me. I had dinner on the table at 5 o'clock. I just wanted to see what was out there. At that point in my life, I would have joined a posse going in any direction as long as there was danger and excitement. Georgia grew up in Rochester, New York, near the headquarters of Kodak. In fact, she became the Kodak poster girl, literally. It was a life-size image of myself, and I was in a blue and white polka dot bikini. Georgia moves from upstate New York all the way down to the Big Apple. She finds a place and quickly gets a job as a bartender, working for a guy named Frankie. And Frankie's bar is a mob bar. And if you imagine something out of Goodfellas, 
That's pretty much right. One night, I'm behind the bar. Everything is pretty light and happy. This guy came in. I knew that this guy was kind of a thorn in Frankie's side for some reason. He ordered a drink, and I set it down in front of him, and then I see he pulls out a gun. I couldn't move. I couldn't run. I couldn't. I couldn't hide. I, I just stood there, frozen. All I could see was the barrel of the gun. The gun goes off. The guy right next to him falls to the ground. Everybody just scattered. Frankie grabbed me and pulled me out, and we ran down the street. We're, like, hiding in this doorway. Frankie says, there's the shooter. Kiss me. He didn't want him to recognize us as he was walking by. I really thought that was going to be our last kiss. The guy just quickly walked by us and never even turned in our direction. As soon as he passed us, we ran back. Nobody was there, and the guy was laying on the ground, bleeding profusely. That's when Frankie threw me the keys, and he says, Georgie girl, pull up the car. I pulled up the car, they threw him in the back seat, and I drove him to Bellevue Hospital. We got in front of the emergency room, I beeped the horn, they pulled his body out of the car, and we took off. The guy did live, but uh, it was a few months later that they ended up getting him anyway. That's, uh, that's how my driving career started. <laughs> All they talked about was, man, Georgie girl, can you drive a car? Now, several of the mob guys approached Georgia to be their driver for their jobs. What kind of jobs? Well, Georgia wasn't clear at first. All they asked was that Georgia drive them to a house, that Georgia wait a half hour or so, and then that Georgia drive them home. What could go wrong? What I was doing, I thought, was fairly innocent. I assumed what these guys were doing was collecting the VIG. The VIG is the interest that mob loans these guys money and they collect big interest. Sometimes they have to break legs or arms or bones to to get it. (laughs) Well, I wasn't in on that part of it. I would just wait around the corner of the car. But what they were actually doing was robbing these places. One night, I'm waiting, as I normally do, and I see in my rearview mirror the guys running up to the car, and I see that they have their guns out. They get up to the car, flung open the doors, and said, Step on it. And I heard sirens in the distance. I took off. The sirens were getting louder and louder, and then I could actually see them in my rearview mirror. I had to get away. There was traffic, and uh, I had to get around this traffic or we were going to get caught. So I ended up clipping some mirrors trying to squeeze through these cars, and then at some point I had to actually go over the sidewalk and, and back on the street. Now I'm starting to create the distance. I saw this alley, and I said, let's pull in there and just get lost, and I, that's what I did. I pulled in there. And just maybe 30, 40 seconds later, the cops just went whizzing by with their sirens on. I knew I had lost them. Then I got all kinds of praises from the guys. Georgie girl, that was a good job. You you really saved our asses, you know. I realized at that point, you know, this is really, I'm, I'm in too deep here. But, you know, it's like, how, how, do you, how do you get away? You know, how do you stop? Driving a getaway car was one thing. But getting away from the mob, that was something else entirely. See, Georgia knew stuff. She'd seen the game go down, and if she left, who knows? They might think, maybe she'd testify against them. And they couldn't have that. So... Georgia stayed. 
It took several years and another mob bar before Georgia saw her next big opportunity to escape. She was having a drink with a friend, and wouldn't you know it. This guy walks over and he straddles the seat and he's hanging on every word. I feel him there, I'm not looking at him, but he's making me very uncomfortable. Finally, I looked up at him and he looks, he looks me straight in the eye and he says, I'm going to marry you. Who is this jerk, right? <laughs> he said his name was Joe. Joe and Georgia started dating. While we were dating, it was like a whirlwind. It was all exciting. Everything was champagne and limousines. It was a lifestyle that I thought was pretty cool. Uh, I ended up marrying him, just like he said. And then the day we got married is the day he changed. I became his possession. He started dictating who I could hang around with, who I could talk to. It's weird to say this, but Joe's crazy possessiveness, it had one big upside. Because he kept Georgia at home, because he insisted she stay at home, it meant she could no longer play the getaway driver. And because Joe had a very nasty reputation, no one gave Georgia any grief for getting out of the game. But it got worse. At that time, my daughter was, she was two. She would climb up on the, on the kitchen counter and she would jump into his arms and they were laughing and having a good time and she'd climb back up again and she'd jump again and then she'd do it a third time. And the fourth time she got up, he moved out of the way and let her fall to the floor and then he said, there, that'll teach you never to trust anybody. I was always trying to leave. I was always trying to get away from him. And um, I was packing things up and he came in and saw that, you know, I was planning on leaving, and he says, you really want to leave? He says, okay, you, you can leave. He pushed me down and put a gun to my head. He had just put one bullet in the chamber, and then he twirled the chamber around. And he says, how bad do you want to leave? Of course, I'm, I'm begging for my life and saying, no, I'll stay, I'll stay, I won't go, I won't go. He actually pulled the trigger. You know, uh, finally, you know, I, I guess he believed me and uh, took the gun away from my temple, and I stayed, you know, I stayed. It wasn't until years later when Georgia decided that she'd sacrificed too much. My daughter's playing in the pool, and she's seven at this time. There's these little girls that she's playing with, and she's having fun, and she's laughing. And I looked up from my book hearing her laugh and realized that I had not heard her laugh in a long time. And my heart just broke. I mean, I was so immersed in my own pain that I didn't see hers, and and I saw it for the first time. It just broke my heart. I didn't think. I mean, I just reacted. And I could see my, my husband playing tennis below me. And so I knew where he was, and I got up, and I took her by the hand, I I just grabbed whatever I could, whatever clothes, and I threw them in the car, and I just got in the car. And I'm shaking and, you know, knowing that, you know, he could be coming up any minute. So now I'm driving down the path, and I'm going past the tennis courts, and he sees me, and he stops dead in his tracks. And he just looks at me like, you better turn around if you know what's good for you. And I just kept going. I ended up in uh, Hollywood, and the I, 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 only reason why I knew I was there was because I could see the Hollywood sign through the smog. We lived in the car, and I'm trying to figure out what the heck am I going to do. And, you know, I mean, the only thing I'd ever done was, was, was model, so I didn't, I didn't have any other skills. I can't model because, you know, he'll figure out where I am. The mob will figure out where I am. I didn't know who wanted to kill me. Anyway, I'm watching a lot of TV, and it seems like every time there's a commercial, it's a car commercial. And then I really started to look at it and realized that you could never see the driver. I said, that's perfect. I could do that. I would show up on the sets and and just bug these directors, and they would just kind of look at me like, yeah, sure, she can drive, you know. But I kept doing it. I didn't give up. I just kept, you know, showing up, and this one director said... um, 
He says, you know, I'm really kind of sick of seeing your face. He says, I'm going to give you a shot. He says, you show up on Tuesday and we'll see what you can do. He says, if you don't do well, he says, I don't ever want to see your face again. (laughs) Anyway, I showed up on Tuesday and showed him what I could do. and, And he was impressed and told the next guy and the next guy. And before I knew it, I was turning down work. Well, I got my thrills, um, you know, when I'm when I'm working, and I go fast, and you know that the the heart's beating fast, and are you gonna make it? You know. <laughs> now, don't believe for a moment that the Georgia of the stunt track isn't gonna be the Georgia driving next to you on the road. Oh yes. Coldwater Canyon is like a very windy uh, mountain road. I love driving that canyon because I can drive it like it's a racetrack. I come to a a truck in the road that's going like 20 miles an hour. I mean, come on. And it's not a place where you can pass because, you you know, you can't see what's around the corner. After driving like that for five minutes, I, you know, I just took a chance and it was kind of stupid, but... You know, I just couldn't take it behind that, behind that guy any longer. So I passed him. And once I passed him, I'm doing 40 now. And all of a sudden, he can do 40. He's right on my tail. And I get to the bottom of the hill, and there's a light. And I look in my rearview mirror, and this guy gets out of the car, and he weighed about 250 pounds. He's a six foot five, and, you know, he's coming over to my car. So... I just went through the red light, and it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. There's no, nobody on the road. To go home, I would have had to go straight. But I took a right because I didn't want him following me home. And he jumps back in his car, and he starts chasing me down Ventura Boulevard. I'm ahead of him about maybe 200 yards, and he's just not going to go away. So what I did was I pulled a 180, and I came back at him directly in his lane and we were like coming up together head on and I could see his eyes his eyes were as big as saucers and he swerved to miss me and he just kept going straight (laughs) Uh, but you know my everyday driving I drive you know like like a grandma actually (laughs) on the street Big thanks to Georgia Durante in Los Angeles. She's the author of the book, The Company She Keeps. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Nick Vanderkolk with Renzo Gorio. Now, when Snap Judgment returns, we're going to explore the end of everything we know. And then, we're going on the best vacation ever. When Snap Judgment, the outside looking in episode continues, stay tuned. Outside looking in episode of Snap Judgment. Today, we're digging into stories where people step outside their cozy worlds and find that things look a little bit different. Snap Judgment producer Anna Sussman. She was curled up in front of the TV, having a good night, and she came across something more than a little bit disturbing. Sensitive listeners and those with young children should be advised that this next piece does contain 
dark imagery. It's not gonna happen now. People are crazy, but not that crazy. What if it does happen? What do we do? This is an old made-for-TV movie. My husband brought it home a little while ago and made me watch it. It's called The Day After, about a small town in Kansas when nuclear war destroys America. It's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. Major Reinhardt, we have a massive attack against the U.S. net at this time. ICBMs. Numerous ICBMs. Roger, understand. Over 300 missiles inbound now. I had to turn it off, three nights in a row, and I couldn't sleep. You watch as families and children and schools and land and livestock are eaten away by radiation. So I started to read about the film, and I learned that the director, Nicholas Meyer, got really sick himself while he was making it. It scared me, and it scared the actors. The actors had nightmares. We used to refer to them as nuke-mares. Learning about this stuff, plunging into the nitty-gritty of radiation sickness, you came home very beat up and tired and sometimes feeling literally sick. The thing that scared him most was that all of this was a real possibility. He was used to fiction. He directed Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. But this was the 80s. The Reagan administration talked about winnable nuclear war and sending a warning shot to Russia. There were defense plans to evacuate cities, to lose 20% of the population. Nuclear catastrophes seemed very possible, even from the time he was a kid. When I was a kid, I lived in New York, which even then I understood was a target city. And as an imaginative kid, when I would hear low-flying aircraft go by, I, I wondered, you know, is this it? So when he was directing the movie, he didn't hold back. He did everything he could to show on screen how gruesome a nuclear war would be. Everything burnt, everything dead, everything broken, whether you're talking about animals, livestock, people, buildings. And Nicholas got more and more disturbed by what he was seeing every day on the set. He needed to show this awful scenario in living rooms across the country. I wasn't out to do any propaganda. I just wanted to say, look, if you have a nuclear war, it's going to be bad, and let them decide what they wanted to do with that information after they had had a glimpse of it. There's no question that the most disturbing moment in the movie for, for me is the sequence where all the missiles take off. And there's a football game in progress in, in Lawrence, Kansas. The football game's going on. And suddenly you see these contrails zooming up from beyond the stadium. And uh, a student and a teacher get into a conversation. What's going on? Those are Miniman missiles. Like a test, sort of. Like a warning? They're on their way to Russia. They take about 30 minutes to reach their target. So do theirs, right? After the bombs land, it becomes clear that you don't necessarily want to survive. There's this scene of thousands of people piled on top of each other on the floor of a huge gymnasium, and they're all wasting away and groaning in pain. And they also suffered uh, skin lesions and loss of hair and all the symptoms of advancing radiation sickness. I can't keep nothing in. Not even my own hair. I got, I got, I got these bruises, like, all, all on my arms, see? It's real bad. And the camera just pulls back and back and back. And, and it's not until you play it back that you go, Jesus Christ. He was so freaked out that when ABC tried to make edits and cuts, he had put so much pressure on the whole thing, he just lost it. I found myself resigning 
um, and leaving the cutting room and going home had just invested so much of my heart, my brain, my guts. I was suicidal. I just thought, well, that's it. You know, I'll just pull the covers over my head and turn on the gas. Why? Like, would you have felt that way about Star Trek? That's a, it's a very good question. I did understand that this was different from Star Trek. Uh, This was definitely about, you know, trying to change the world. Did you think that this made-for-TV movie was going to be responsible for averting nuclear holocaust? Like, when you were really in it. I think what I thought was, if I showed people some version, some vision of what a nuclear war would look like or what the aftermath would look like, that it might serve to mobilize what was then called the nuclear freeze movement. It was right in the middle of Nicholas making this film when Reagan made his famous evil empire speech, insisting that we needed to build trillions of dollars worth of nuclear weapons to preserve American values. The truth is that a freeze now would be a very dangerous fraud. The reality is that we must find peace through strength. When the movie was finally set to air, ABC set up 24-hour emergency hotlines for distressed viewers. Mr. Rogers devoted five episodes of his show to talking to kids about war. In the show's King Friday of Make-Believe, mistakenly thinks a neighboring town is plotting to bomb him. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? And uh, doctors were telling uh, families whether their kids should be allowed to see the movie and church Associations were going to have people watching the movie in groups, holding hands. Before the movie begins, we would like to caution parents about the graphic depiction of nuclear explosions and their devastating effects. In homes where young people are watching, we'd like to suggest that the family watch together so that parents can be on hand to answer questions and discuss And the next morning, I woke up astounded to learn that 100 million people had watched this movie, which makes it the most watched movie ever made for television. So what Nicholas wanted to know was, what was the impact? The press, in their eagerness to help, went around with an instant morning-after survey, a day-after-day-after survey, in which they thrust microphones in front of people and said, did this movie change your mind about a winnable nuclear war, yay or nay. And then came back, I think, slightly gleeful to me to say, well, according to our instant poll, your movie didn't change anybody's mind about nuclear war one way or the other. What do you have to say about that, Mr. Meyer? But I put the best face on it that I could, and I said, well, I think it's a little too early to say. I was certainly disappointed and uh, brought low. Do you think anybody's going to say, oh, yes, I watched a TV movie last night and I changed my mind about nuclear war? But some folks say it did change minds. David Courtright was president of the Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy in the 80s. It was really one of the dramatic and most significant events of that whole decade in terms of popular culture. David, when I was talking to Nicholas Meyer, the director, he said that he really hoped the movie helped the nuclear freeze movement. Do you think that happened? Oh, absolutely. It really had a catalytic effect in helping to build support for a nuclear disarmament. It did scare the crap out of people, like it scared me. And one of the people the film affected was a pretty important one. Again, director Nicholas Meyer. I didn't find it out for... a. A long time. I didn't find out that one person had changed his mind essentially overnight or certainly within the next couple of days and that that person was Ronald Reagan, the president of the United States. In 1990, Reagan published his autobiography. He talks about the day after and and how it affected him. This is what Reagan wrote in his diary. Columbus Day. In the morning at Camp D, I ran the tape of a movie ABC is running, 
It's called The Day After. It's very powerfully done. My own reaction? We have to do all we can to see there is never a nuclear war. And of course, that became Reagan's own mantra. Nuclear war could never be won and must never be fought. It was soon after that that he started to use this phrase. So maybe it turned out to be a valuable thing after all. I, you know, I think for a while could lie awake at night, stare at the ceiling and say, my God, I actually did something in this life, something good. Four years later, Reagan and Gorbachev signed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. It was the first time in history that nations agreed to destroy any nuclear missiles. In this case, the complete elimination of an entire class of U.S. and Soviet nuclear missiles. В отличие от договоров прошлого, этот договор не просто узаконил существующее положение или новое наращивание вооружений. Big thanks to Nicholas Meyer for sharing his story with the snap. It was produced by Anna Sussman with sound design by Renzo Gorio. And we should let you know that the film was screened in Russia and in Cuba, all over the world. And everywhere it was shown, people had the bejesus scared out of them. Now then, I don't know about you, but after a nuclear winter, I need to clear the storytelling palette. We're going to jump over to the Baltimore storytelling series, The Stoop, where Michael Auerbach tells us about his vacation from the outside looking in. Uh, so this is a story of uh, an ambitious 18-year-old. Uh, my senior high school trip was to Cancun, Mexico. Um, it was like a $1,000 trip, and I was unable to afford it. Um, However, when my friends attended the uh, pre-flight meeting uh, about two weeks before uh, the trip, they told me my name was actually mentioned, that I was on the list of people who were going to go. Um, so I signed in so you had like, access to some online accounts to see if you paid your balance in full. Of course, I had a zero next to my balance. It said not paid in full, so no plane ticket for me, nothing. Um, but I don't know where I got this idea from, but since my name was called, um, I decided to give it a shot. I was going to show up to the airport and just try to go on the trip. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, I, but I was clever with it. So I actually signed on to my friend's account, and I um, copy and pasted his boarding pass. It was a charter flight. Copy and pasted his border pass, deleted his information, and added my name. Added my name, everything. Went to the airport, went through security, uh, went up to the charter flight, handed him to the pass, like, so that, you know, it's a perfect little line. Everyone's just getting on the flight. Just hand in your pass, get right on. Hand in my pass. He's like, wait a minute. Stas me, he looks at it, he's like, okay, go. <laughs> it's a true story. So I get on the flight, the flight takes off on my way to Mexico. <laughs> I didn't pay a dollar. And this is an all-inclusive trip, so hotels paid for, like, drink, pass, like, food, everything. Um, and we get on, <laughs> we get on the bus, like, okay, we land in Mexico, we get on the bus on the way to the hotel, they're like, all right, drink passes for everybody, here you go. And there was, I raised my hand, I'm like, oh, I'm missing mine. And he's like, oh, okay, no problem, gives me a drink pass. <laughs> we get to the hotel, everyone just, like, has their room keys assigned, everyone's going to the rooms, I walk up, I'm like, oh, I don't have my room key. They're like, oh, oh, no problem, they're like, well, we're out of regular rooms, so we'll give you the suite. <laughs> This is a true story. This is a true story. <laughs> so all of my classmates have like um, the rooms of two, like double rooms, like two twin-size beds. I have like a king-size bed to myself. It's like a walk-in closet, like beautiful shower, the whole nine. Um, to wrap up the story, so the trip goes well. Five days just having fun. Uh, fast forward five days and the flight back to Florida. Um, we're on the tarmac. Um, the flight's getting ready to take off. And we're sitting there just for a while. We're sitting there for like, it was clear it was a problem. Something's wrong. And the pilot finally comes on. He's like, uh, we, have a pro we have a problem with the roster, um, with the manifest, the passenger list, whatever. Like, we don't have the correct number. Like, someone's on the flight who shouldn't be on the flight. <laughs> Those were his exact words. So I'm just bugging. And this whole time, I'm, I think I'm like um, the coolest guy in the world for pulling this off. And now, all of a sudden, I'm like the scaredest guy in the world. 
Um, so I'm sitting there just like sweating bullets for like a solid half an hour sitting on the uh, runway. Um, but lo and behold, just some kid got in the wrong flight. And so they got him off. <laughs> and, and the flight took off and I'm on my way back to Florida. Thank you very much to Michael Auerbach for packing us in his luggage. We appreciate it. Michael told that story live at the Stoop Storytelling Series in Baltimore. To find out more about the Stoop, go to stoopstorytelling.com. That piece was produced by Jessica Hinkin and Laura Wetzler. Snap Judgment. Outside, looking in. We'll be right back after the break. Stay tuned. Judgment from PRX and NPR. My name is Lynn Washington, and today we're exploring what it's like to see your world through an outsider's perspective. In fact, for our next story, we're going to dive into what happens when a whole country starts seeing their world a little bit differently. Snap Judgment Stephanie Fu has a story. Everybody knows the movie The Sound of Music. What if The Sound of Music was all you could watch every day? In Romania in the 1980s, communist dictator Nicolae Ceausescu enacted harsh censorship laws, which meant The Sound of Music was one of the only things you could watch on television. And even that was censored because there were not supposed to be any references to religion. Of course, they cut out the fact that Julie Andrews was a nun, first of all, so was coming from a monastery. She just appeared in the street just like that. We don't know where from. That's Irina Nistor. Romania hadn't always been this way. When Irina was a little girl, the occasional English film would make it to the movie house. All the movies were subtitles, so I could hear English, I could hear French. I was learning English from the movies a lot. Lawrence of Arabia, the man torn between two civilizations. To learn English as a girl, she watched movies and got a private tutor. And when she got older, she landed a job as the official English translator for government-controlled television. But now, she was part of the censorship. Uh, there were many things you couldn't translate. So, for example, even the word lover was changed with friend, so... You can't imagine. Irina thought she was going to lose it from boredom. Until one day, when she got word that a mysterious man wanted to pay her twice her regular salary for a private translation gig. So Irina showed up at this strange guy's house. He told her he'd heard her voice on TV, and he wanted her to dub a bunch of American VHS tapes that he'd smuggled in. So he handed her a mic and asked her to show him what she could do. You talking to me? You talking to me? You are supposed to, to listen to the film and to translate directly without stopping. That's very important. You can't stop during the three hours. I was doing that just one take. You talking to me? 
Atunci cu cine dracu vorbești? Cu mine, nu? The man hired her on the spot. Compared to all other translators, she's special because of the power and charm of her dubbing. That's him, Irina's new boss. His name is Zamfir, and he was an ex-con. The communist regime had sentenced him to seven years of hard labor for stealing radios, and now that he was out, he held a serious grudge against the regime. I never thought like a communist. All my life, I couldn't raise my head and say, am I your comrade too? If I broke one rule of the game, why not break them all? So the two teamed up. Zamfir was Irina's ticket to the movies. And in return, Zamfir now had the most productive translator anywhere. So how many were you doing in a row at this point? Seven to eight films a day. Did you ever get tired of movies after 12 hours? Never, never ever, never. Didn't you need to go to the bathroom? <laughs> no, I didn't, yes. I had good uh, kidneys. Zamfir copied hundreds of tapes and sold each one for half a month's salary. And one VCR cost as much as a car. So people sold their cars. Sometimes a whole neighborhood would chip in to rent a VCR and several tapes overnight. And 20, 30 people would gather to watch. To find anyone who doesn't want to be found in Tokyo is no mean job. Here's Alinga Kalagoranu. She's Romanian, and she was a little girl when she went to her first movie nights, featuring Zamfir's tapes. Most of the people were smoking, so you could really cut the smoke with a knife. Everybody was on the floor, on the counter, everybody was crowded. And you'd watch seven films in a row, because if you were lucky enough to get the chance to be close to a VCR, there was a chance it would never happen again. There were moving images, you could see freedom. It was there, food in the fridge, big swimming pools, Coca-Cola, I don't know, jeans and all of these things, which, which you know, people want. The most valuable tapes were controversial ones, like 1984 or Brazil. But the most popular tapes were Chuck Norris films. And here, these action movies were surprisingly political. Here's Irina. Chuck Norris uh, is uh, the idea of, of a hero that could uh, come one day and uh, kill all the communists because he could kill so many people at the same time. People were thinking that they could come and save us. American, I want to negotiate. American, I want to negotiate, Loud and clear. Ilinka, who grew up with the tapes, tells us about how important the tapes became. The tapes became as valuable as gold. You could bribe people with the tapes, you could get different services, you could get different connections. The butcher was becoming a very important person during those days because meat was a hard thing to get. If you had the right relationship with the butcher, he would keep a few cuts of meat for you. And to build that kind of special relationship with the butcher, you had to give him presents. And one of the best things to give was obviously a tape. You don't have the guts to be what you want to be. You need people like me. The tapes became currency, and Zamfir was the bank. At a certain point, the money I was making was much more than I needed or could spend. More money than I could bear. Then, there was the pleasure of power. The power of, uh, I need a yacht at the seaside. I got it. Of course, what Irina and Zamfir were doing was illegal. And this was a time when everyone feared the secret police. My love for films was more important than my, than my fear. I wasn't fearing anything. I was just fearing that I couldn't see enough movies, that's all. And that's a gutsy thing to say, because Irina was super famous. It's kind of like if Danny DeVito decided to rob a bank. Everybody knew my voice. They knew I was working for the Romanian television, so I couldn't hide my voice. So if they wished to arrest me or something, they could do it in 10 minutes. But they didn't. They didn't. 
because the regime proved to be some of her best customers. Who could stop me? Everybody was interested in the films. One of the people who kept trying to get tapes from me was Ceausescu's son. Zamfir became more and more powerful. And the people who he'd hated, the same people who he had blamed for destroying his youth, he now had them over to his house for movie nights. I understood how a great leader feels, how Ceausescu became Ceausescu, because of how I became Zamfir. And Zamfir started acting like those people he despised too. He was arrogant, suspicious of everyone, and greedy. Irina translated 5,000 films, but Zamfir never raised her salary. He never even offered to give her one tape. Not that her family could watch it anyway. Uh, my family couldn't hear me because we weren't rich enough to have a VCR. That's, that's terrible. Yeah. All that time you could not own a VCR or hear your own tapes? No, no. Were you always curious? Yeah, I was very much curious to have a colored TV. That was my aim in life. Wow. Wow, yes. He was part communist strongman and part capitalist. I think he was an excellent uh, businessman. I think uh, you can't be a businessman without being quite cruel. Communism in Europe began to collapse in 1989. One by one, revolutions occurred in Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria. The Berlin Wall was breached in November. And in December, Romanian citizens rioted in the streets. Ceausescu was tried and executed on Christmas. The new government took over. And by New Year's Eve, the free Romanian TV, finally uncensored now, played Animal Farm. I remember that as a, as a very important moment because it was kind of expressing everything we've been through. And this film was dubbed by Irina. But this time uh, it was uh, the Romanian television, the free Romanian television. And uh, I was very happy to make people think that uh, we have to give up completely communism and not only Ceausescu. Irina's face came on to introduce the film. And she talked a little about the history of Orwell's novel. Romania was stunned. Here's Alinka. It was the first time that people saw her face. Because until then she was a voice. I know for a lot of people, it was like a bit disconcerting and these voices that you hear on the radio, they really don't match with the face. But for me, it felt like everything was falling into place. With communism dead in Romania, Zamfir's tape business no longer had a purpose. People could buy subtitled tapes legally now. And after some time, Zamfir's power and influence faded away. He lives alone now. He wishes he hadn't gouged his fellow countrymen to watch his tapes. There was no reason. I didn't deserve all the respect and power. I am ashamed. I am ashamed. I came on this planet as an animal in human skin. All my life, I struggled to be a proper man. I would have been a wise man had I imparted the light of the VHS tape. Without arrogance, brutality, material gain. Has Zafir ever apologized to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we met uh, recently, he said, I, I think I was uh, too severe or something like that. So I said, it's okay. But one thing does bring Zafir comfort and pride when he looks back on that time. He believes that the tapes brought down Ceausescu, that they played a critical part in inspiring the revolution. Because of the VHS tape, the whole communist system faltered. It's like plowing the land before sowing, sowing ideas of revolt, revolution. So the VHS tape fertilized the human mind. During the revolution, everyone was in the streets because they all knew there was a better life out there. I think he is a character, like in the movie. Is he the villain? Are you? <laughs> who, who is he in the movie? <laughs> no, I think he is the villain in the beginning, and in the end you discovered that he is the good guy. And who are you? Oh, goodness, I never thought who am I. I think I am just a voice. 
During that period, I was a narrator of the Western world. Now, Irina Nistor, she went on to become a film critic. Romanians now refer to her as the godmother of cinema. And Ilinka Kalgaranu, she grew up to have a deep love of film as well. She's currently working on a documentary about Irina and Zamfir called Chuck Norris versus Communism. Some of the tape from our story comes from that documentary, and they're trying to finish the film right now. To check it out, visit our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Stephanie Fu. You've been listening to Snap, the outside looking in. And from the inside looking out at those yet to join Snap Nation, let them know. Full episodes available right now at snapjudgment.org. Facebook, iTunes, our Twitter handle, snapjudgment.org. Snap was produced by myself and a team of radio magicians assembled from the four corners of the earth. Put your hands together for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. C.D. Miller puts the beats down but doesn't get beat down. Stephanie Fu, Dippity Doo, Anna Sussman rejects the idea of cloth diapers. Julia DeWitt ignores police officer instructions. Renzo Gorio, who joined the band for one reason and one reason only. Nick Vanderkolk starts his last name with lowercase letters. And Will Urbina will not shake your hand until after you've wiped down with a moist towelette. Corporation for Public Broadcasting has not yet announced that Snap Judgment wins the best thing ever prize. That's okay. We know they're waiting for just the right time. Much love to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, likes to put the public in a sandwich, along with mayo, some sriracha sauce, and those pickles. PRX.org. And you know this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could put all your money down the table. I could deal you a bunch of cards. And while you're studying those cards, I could take your money and see how you like that. <laughs> you don't like it, do you? But I could do it. And you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. This is NGR. <laughs>